This is a Federal News Network podcast. Federal contractors, like companies throughout the economy, must live under the regulatory regimes established by federal agencies. But what about the use of contractors in the act of rulemaking itself, an activity you might have thought was inherently governmental? Not so fast. A study done for the Administrative Conference of the United States shows how much agencies do use contractors for this purpose. We get more now from study co-author and University of Virginia professor, Dr. Rachel Augustine Potter. Dr. Potter, good to have you on. Thanks for having me on, Tom. And what prompted you to study whether contractors are involved in the rulemaking process, which itself is a big administrative to-do, regardless of what it is they're regulating? Well, rulemaking is really special. When agencies write rules, they follow a process where they issue a proposed rule. Generally, they get public comments and then they write a final rule. And after that process, they have created binding law. So this is a really important fundamental activity that government agencies do today. And what we know is sort of anecdotally, if you talk to agency personnel, they might say about writing a rule, they might tell you oh, a contractor worked on that part of the rule. Or you might look at a contractor's website and they might, under their services tab, say that they provide rulemaking support for agencies. And so what we wanted to do in this project, and this is a project with my co-author Bridget Dooling at George Washington University, was to really unpack what that means and whether this is something we should be really worried about or okay with. Is the concern that the rulemaking process might be influenced by the contractor point of view, or are contractors simply providing hosting services for the comments and that kind of thing? Well, what we found in this report for ACUS, and I'm speaking on my personal behalf, not on ACUS's behalf here, we found that contractors really perform all kinds of services. So we categorize those services in the report in great detail. But they do things that are more ministerial in nature, like what you've just described, maybe just downloading comments from regulations.gov and organizing them for agencies. But they also do more substantive tasks, depending on the agency. So they might do things like write a first draft of a proposed rule, both the preamble and the regulatory text. So they help with the English prose, in other words, as well as the technical aspects of hosting these things. It's all done online nowadays for the most part. Any other things that contractors commonly do for agencies with respect to rulemaking? So it really runs the gamut. Again, some agencies never use contractors in rulemaking. And other agencies, we found a real continuum where at the other end of the spectrum, some agencies are using contractors for all kinds of tasks, including maybe running surveys for the agency, collecting data, reviewing the academic literature, perhaps analyzing comments that came in, um, right? So helping the agency draft responses to those comments. It really is a panoply of services, which is something that we weren't expecting to find. We thought perhaps contractors were just helping with um, administrative comments, for example. And did you come across any examples where contractors actually influence or suggest the content of rules? For example, suppose we're analyzing something in the environmental domain and there's a rule proposed for this many parts per million of something somewhere. Do contractors ever say, well, a good rule might be 15 parts per million instead of 17? So we didn't come across any examples of contractors violating any sort of ethics rules. But one of the things we try to highlight in the report is that 
contractors and federal employees are really different animals. So federal employees swear an oath to the Constitution, and they are subject to a host of ethics requirements and other restrictions. Contractors don't have those same restrictions, and they don't swear that same oath. And so that raises a number of questions that I think we should be asking about what is happening when a contractor works in a rule, and are there the appropriate safeguards in place? We're speaking with Dr. Rachel Augustine Potter, an associate professor in the Department of Politics at the University of Virginia and co-author of the study for the Administrative Conference of the United States. What are some of the questions that arise, do you feel? So the questions that agencies need to be asking themselves when it comes to if they're using contractors in rulemaking are, what are the safeguards that we have in place? Have we set up an appropriate monitoring scheme within the agency? So one of the things we found in our report was that agency leaders don't always know what's happening with an agency rule. So they might sign off on the rule, but not know who worked on it within the agency, which isn't uncommon. But at the same time, if contractors are helping agencies create that policy, then you might want to know the biases that they might be introducing and making sure that you're cognizant of that as, as you move forward. Right. So it's an accountability question in many ways. It's an accountability and an ethics question too, right? So we want to make sure contractors, again, since they don't have those same loyalty and ethics requirements that federal employees do, we want to make sure that we're protecting the agency's interests. And just to put it bluntly, then there's the possibility that a contractor working on a rule, it could be for another industry entirely than that contractor might be involved in. Nevertheless, they could be, say, a little bit more pro-business than the agency wants to be, for example. I'm just making this up. But they could subtly alter the process such that the rule could be more favorable to industry than perhaps the agency originally intended. So that's the concern, right, that contractors might be introducing influence and that we want to make sure that we're protecting the agency's interest. Again, we didn't find any concrete evidence of this. What we found, right, is that there's a potential for these organizational conflicts of interest where a firm could potentially learn things in a rulemaking and then use that information in ways that are advantageous to the firm later on where the individuals at a personal level might encounter personal conflicts of interest where they learn information in a rulemaking and they don't have the same restrictions that a federal employee who might learn that same information in a rulemaking might do. Right. They could make favorable investment decisions, for example. Potentially, yes. And what about the question of inherently governmental? Because I think rulemaking is everyone agrees, is inherently governmental. This question came up in the A76 debates of many years ago. Do you feel that you saw any instances of where the inherently governmental part of rulemaking, where they got into the process deeply enough that it could be that contractors were doing inherently governmental work? So when it comes to rulemaking, there's a standard called closely associated with inherently governmental function. And many rulemaking support tasks are considered closely associated to inherently governmental. What we found in our report was that many agency personnel were aware that there was this line. Um, one person said a contractor can do everything except push that big red policy making button, but that there probably needs to be greater awareness of exactly sort of where that line is because it, it does get blurry. Right, because if they do everything but push the button, pushing the button is the closely associated, if it means like turning on a website or something or, or hitting the rule on final to publish a rule, 
which means that closely associated, again, is the button pushing, but not all the process that led to what it is that's invoked by the button pushing. Yeah, so that's the kind of thing that we're asking. How much of that is happening? Can we unpack how you get to a place where there's a what one person described to us as a slippery slope where a contractor starts taking on more and more tasks to help the agency who's understaffed and under-resourced who is making the policy decision? Again, our mandate was not to sort of go out and find examples of the bad guys, but really to help agencies explore and understand how they can structure the rulemaking process to avoid that slippery slope. Right. It could be almost like a caretaker for someone who is having dementia. They start getting beyond the kinds of decisions they have the uh, right to make, I guess, on that person's behalf. Did you have any recommendations for the administrative conference? Yes, we had a number of recommendations in our report. Some of them suggest that agencies should really step back and take stock. What are we doing in rulemaking? Who is doing what? What are our policies for contractors in rulemaking? Do we have a policy? If we don't have a policy, uh, we recommend that agencies go ahead and make a policy to say, well, what meetings should contractors should come to? What should they not come to? How are we guarding against both organizational and personal conflicts of interest in our agency, among many others, I should say. And these recommendations, what can happen with them? What can the administrative conference do with them? Can it adopt them as policy? So we're going through a process with the administrative conference right now to review our report, and there will be a public plenary in June. And after that, the conference will vote on whether to adopt recommendations related to this report. And if they do, agencies are encouraged to take them up. And they're not having a contractor review the report for them, are they? No, although we are contractors for Aegis. Well, all right. But it goes, yeah, it's a complicated world sometimes. Rachel Augustine yes. Potter is an associate professor in the Department of Politics at the University of Virginia and co author of the study for the Administrative Conference of the U.S. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having me, Tom. We'll post this interview and a link to that study at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on your schedule. Subscribe at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader and what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, the first person personally was my mom. Uh, she was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was a leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, she was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, we were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing 
we were in regular housing, the people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, as part of her job, she worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then cleaned houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she would always manage to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right? To try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? Mm. I would describe it, hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, uh, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated. Uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we made our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, and that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, and it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on what does it look like? Because I think successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly Black women and certainly 
gay black women. Uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka. So I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a signal effect of what other people are going to expect as black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the, expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience, and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and oftentimes based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind, to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with a Washington Post um, uh, interview, and it, it, you were amazing. And it, it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy. Whether in person or remote, open communication with your doctor is key to managing any condition, including heart failure. How have you been feeling? Um, I'm okay. Both are great options to continue having open conversations with your doctor about how you're feeling. I've had less energy. And when you speak openly with your doctor, they're better equipped to help. Visit heartfailuretalks.com to learn more. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.